This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Fierce Love Films, The Post Carbon Institute, Michael Norton, Dan Savage, Economic Update with Richard Wolff, Activism from Best of the Left, and Comedian Lee Camp. Here's what happened. In the 1960s, we were at war with the Soviet Union, Cold War, and a little bit of hot war over in Southeast Asia. So, we we fear them because they put up Sputnik, which, by the way, people forget, was an emptied-out casing of an intercontinental ballistic missile. And Sputnik itself means fellow traveler, so it's all peaceful, but it was a, a, a ballistic missile hit without explosive so that was a signal and we freaked in america so nasa got founded on the fear factor of sputnik all right so we then go to the moon on the fear factor that russia will control high ground then we go to the moon space enthusiasts say oh we're on the moon by 69 we'll be on mars in another 10 years they completely did not understand why we got to the moon in the first place we were at war once we saw that russia was not Ready to land on the moon? Stop going to the moon. That, that, that should not surprise anybody looking back on it. Meanwhile, however, that entire era galvanized the nation. Forget the war, driver. It galvanized us all to dream about tomorrow, to think about the, the homes of tomorrow, cities of tomorrow, the food of tomorrow. Everything was future world, future land. The World's Fair, all of this was focused on enabling people to make tomorrow come. That was a that that was a cultural mindset the space program brought upon us, and we reaped the benefits of economic growth because you had people wanting to become scientists and engineers who are the people who enable tomorrow to exist today. And even if you're not a scientist or a technologist, you will value that activity, and that in the 21st century are the foundations of tomorrow's economies. And without it, we might as well just slide back to the cave, because that's where we're headed right now, broke. I'm tired of saying this, but I'll have to say it again. The NASA budget is four-tenths of one penny on a tax dollar. If I held up the tax dollar and I cut horizontally into it four-tenths of one percent of its width, it doesn't even get you into the ink. So I will not accept a statement that says we can't afford it. Do you realize that the $850 billion bank bailout, that sum of money is greater than the entire 50-year running budget of NASA? And so when someone says, we don't have enough money for this space probe, I'm asking, no, it's not that you don't have enough money. It's that the distribution of money that you're spending is warped in some way that you are removing the only thing that gives people something to dream about tomorrow, the, the, the home of tomorrow. The city of tomorrow, transportation of tomorrow, all that ended in the, in, in the 1970s. After we stopped going to the moon, it all ended. We stopped dreaming. And so I worry that decisions that Congress makes doesn't factor in the consequences of those decisions on tomorrow. They're playing for the quarterly report. They're playing for the next election cycle. And that is mortgaging the actual future of this nation. Tomorrow's gone.
If you double NASA's budget right now to half a penny on a dollar, make it a penny. Go ahead, make it a penny. Go ahead, be bold. That would be enough to go to Mars soon with people and go to, back to the moon and on to asteroids. NASA, as best as I can judge, is a force of nature like none other. And so what worries me is that if you take away the man program, a program which if you advance frontiers, you make heroes are made. There's a force operating on the educational pipeline that will stimulate the formation of scientists, engineers, mathematicians, and technologists. You birth these people into society. They are the ones that make tomorrow come. A half a penny. That buys the space station, the space shuttles, all the NASA centers, the rovers, the Hubble telescope, all the astronauts, all of that. Nobody's dreaming about tomorrow anymore. The most powerful agency on the dreams of a nation is currently underfunded to do what it needs to be doing. And that's making dreams come true. How much would you pay for the universe? Anytime you want to understand something, why is such and such happening? Why is there a biodiversity crisis? Or why are we drilling for more oil when it's polluting the atmosphere and causing oil spills? Why? And you ask why, and down a couple levels of why, you always get to money. Yeah, I talk a lot about the story of self that every culture has, and it answers the question, what are you? What is it to be human? So it says that you're the separate being among other separate beings in a universe that is separate from yourself as well. Like you're not me, that plant is not me, that's something separate. And this story of self really creates our world. If you're a separate self and there's other separate selves out there and other species out there, and the universe is fundamentally indifferent to you. Uh, or even hostile, then you definitely want to control. You want to be able to have power over other beings and over these, these whimsical, arbitrary forces of nature that, that could extinguish you at any time. This story is becoming obsolete. It's becoming no longer true. We don't resonate with it anymore and it's actually generating crises that are insoluble from the methods of control. And that's what's clearing space, clearing the space for us to step into a new story of self and a new story of the people. Well, money's in agreement. You know, it doesn't have value all by itself. It has value because people agree that it has value. Economists will tell you what money does, that, you know, it, it facilitates exchange. You use it to count things and keep track of things. You know, you write some numbers on a magical piece of paper called a check, and you can cause all kinds of 
abundant goods to come to your house. I mean, you could even cause misery for thousands of people if you are one of the highest initiates of the magic of money. Yeah, scarcity is built into the money system. Um, on a most obvious level, it's because of the way money is created as interest-bearing debt. So anytime a bank lends money into existence or the Federal Reserve creates money, the money comes along with a corresponding amount of debt. And the debt, because there's interest on it, is always greater than the amount of money. So it essentially throws people into competition with each other for never enough money. Growth is another thing that's built into our money system. If you're a bank, you're going to lend to the person who's going to create new goods and services so they can profit and they can pay you back. You're not going to lend to somebody who doesn't create goods and services. So money goes toward those who will create even more of it. But basically, economic growth means that you have to find something that was once nature and make it into a good, or was once a gift relationship and make it into a service. You have to find something that people once got for free or did for themselves or for each other, and then take it away and sell it back to them somehow. By turning things into commodities, we get cut off from nature in the same way as we're cut off from community. We look at nature with, with eyes of it's just a bunch of stuff. And that leaves us very lonely and leaves us with, with many basic human needs that go unmet. And if you have money, you might try to fulfill this hunger through purchasing, through buying things, or through accumulating money itself. And of course now we're ending, we're, we're nearing the end of, of growth. The planet can't sustain much more growth. And that's why the crisis that we have today won't go away. One of the things I talk about is the sense of wrongness that I had as a child. Like I think most kids ha have some sense of it that it's not supposed to be this way. You know, just for example, that you're not supposed to actually hate Monday and be happy when you don't have to go to school. Like school should be something that you love. Life should be something that you love. We didn't earn any of the things that really keep us alive or that make life good. We didn't earn air. We didn't earn being born. We didn't earn our conception. We didn't earn being able to breathe. We didn't earn having a planet that can provide food. We didn't earn the sun. So I think that on some level, people have this inborn gratitude because on some level we know that we didn't earn any of this. We know that life is a gift. Well, if you know that you've received a gift, then the natural response is gratitude, You know, the desire to give in turn. In a gift economy, it's not true the way it is in our money economy that everybody's in competition with everybody else. In a gift society, if you have more than you need, you give it to somebody who needs it. That's how you get status. And that's even where security comes from. Because if you build up all that gratitude, then people are gonna take care of you too. And if there are no gifts, then there's no community. And we can see as societies become more monetized, that community has disappeared. People long for it, but you can't just have community as an add-on to a monetized life. You have to actually need each other. People desire to enact their gifts. And 
if they were free from money, they would do it. But money is, is so often a barrier. You know, people think, oh, I'd love to do this, oh, but can I afford to do it? Is it practical? Money stops them. You know, what beautiful thing would I, would I do? What am I called to do? Would it be to set up big gardens for homeless people to take care of and reconnect them to nature? Uh, would it be to clean up a toxic waste site? Like, what would you do? What beautiful thing would you do? And why isn't it practical to do these things? Why isn't there money in those things? An economy that embodies the principles of the gift is an economy that is simply grounded in the truth. The task before us is to align money with the true expression of our gifts. It requires a very different mechanism for the creation of money and the circulation of money. They include things like negative interest, which reverses the effects of usury. They include things like the internalization of costs, so that you can no longer pollute and have somebody else or future generations pay the costs. They include a social dividend, sharing in the wealth that comes from what should be the commons, the land, the aquifers, our cultural heritage. They include uh, a relocalization of a lot of economic functions. Um, they include all kinds of peer-to-peer -peer finance and, and the peer-to-peer -peer revolution. What, what will it take to shift away from the current money system? Well, the current money system just works less and less well. Growth can only be maintained at a higher and higher cost. Even our best efforts can't keep the economy growing as fast as it needs to for the system to work. And that creates further misery. People just can't take it anymore. Even the people on top, even the winners of this artificially induced competition, they're not happy either. It's not working for them either. So I think that we're going to see a series of crisis moments, each one more severe than the last. And at each crisis moment, we'll have a collective choice. Do we give up the game and join the people, or do we hold on even tighter? It's really up to us to determine at what point this wake-up point will happen. Was this all a big mistake? That's a good question. And it, sure, you know, it sure seems like it was sometimes when you look around at just the horrors that have taken place on this earth and that are ongoing right now. And, and some people think, I just don't want any part of this. Civilization was a huge mistake. I came to see this whole journey of separation not as a mistake, but as part of a larger process. It started, I think, with the environmental movement in the 1960s. That was its first uh, awakening into mass consciousness. And, and the astronauts went up and experienced the pinnacle of separation. And the photos that got beamed down, and today it still evokes love in us. So we're falling in love with Earth. That's one part of our transition into adulthood. The other part is the coming-of-age ordeal, when the old world falls apart and a new world is born. You know, a child plays. A child plays and develops his or her gifts, but doesn't apply them toward their true purpose yet. And that's what humanity's been doing. We've been messing around, 
playing with our gifts of technology and culture and developing these gifts. Now we're coming into adulthood and it's time to apply them to our true purpose. At the beginning, I think that'll be to simply heal the damage that's been done. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done and it's almost impossible, actually. You could say that really we're, we're in the business of creating a miracle here on Earth. I'm saying it's something that is impossible from an old understanding of reality, but possible from a new one. And in fact, it's necessary. And in fact, anything less than that isn't even worth trying. You've heard them, politicians, economists, executives, all saying the same thing. The economy is recovering. Recovering to what? To its normal state of constant growth. In the next five minutes, we're going to see why they're wrong, why economic growth is effectively over, and what that means for the economy, for you, and for your family. It started a couple of centuries ago. There had been economic expansion before, but it was slow and cyclical. Empires rose and fell. But with the Industrial Revolution, rapid growth became normal. Economists tell us this was because of innovation, division of labor, increased trade. But it was mostly a result of cheap energy. It takes energy to do things, and with cheap coal and oil, people could suddenly do more than ever. First coal and then oil sped up trade by fueling our prized inventions. Railroads, automobiles, and airplanes. Economists assumed that growth could go on forever. It was an absurd notion. Nobody stopped to think that all this industrial growth was happening on a small planet with only so much oil and soil only so many forests and fish. We were growing on borrowed time, but we all got hooked on growth. Rising GDP numbers became our main measure of success. More, bigger, and faster meant better. The first warning sign came in the 1970s. A team of scientists programmed a computer with data about population growth, rising consumption, and resource depletion. Their conclusion there are limits to growth. Mainstream economists attacked those findings using nasty rhetorical tricks, but 40 years later, the same conclusion holds. In fact, the industrial economies of the world's wealthy nations started stagnating years ago as resources began to run out. Governments, businesses, and households went into hock up to their eyeballs, gorging on easy credit. The financial system created ever more complex securities and derivative schemes to soak up all that debt and make perpetually rising imaginary profits on imaginary assets. But money and debt depend on natural resources. Piling up debt year after year, doubling it and doubling it again, meant piling up claims on resources that were shrinking as we depleted them. It was a pyramid scheme the mother of all bubbles, and in 2008, it burst.
Governments and central banks tried to reinflate the bubble with bailouts and stimulus packages funded by public debt. But there are practical limits to debt, and we're hitting them. There are practical limits to energy sources, and we're hitting them. There are real limits to the planet's ability to absorb our wastes and industrial accidents, and we've hit those too. We're being told that the economy is recovering, but take away new debt the government has taken on since 2008 to stimulate the economy, and there's been no real economic growth. There is no recovery. It's all been done with more debt. We've already mortgaged our grandchildren's future, but to keep the economy from relapsing, we'll need to borrow even more. The game is up. We've reached the end of economic growth as we've known it. They're lying to you, but they can't help it. We're all addicted to growth. We all want better jobs and higher returns on investments, but we live on a finite planet. The end of growth is not the fault of any one politician or political party, but some people benefited from growth more than others. We can live without economic growth, but we'll have to start doing a few things differently. We have to measure and aim for improvements in life that don't require increasing our consumption of fossil fuels and other depleting resources or piling on more debt. Freedom, being with the people we love, good health and the time to enjoy it, a secure, happy community. We have to work together to build local economies where we can live and prosper. But, and this is a big but, without cheap fossil fuels and without borrowing from the future. The longer we put this off, the harder it will be. Economic growth. It's over. Let's move on. When I talk about building websites with Squarespace, there are two themes I keep finding myself coming back to. The first is their constant pace of innovation. They're always looking for ways to make improvements to their platform, both large and small. The second is the smart partnerships they establish to make integration with other incredibly powerful services as simple and impactful as possible. Today, both of those themes are on display with the big announcement of the new Squarespace 7. Think of it like a newly refined operating system for how a user manages their website on Squarespace. They've made more design improvements than I can possibly list. They've created 15 new templates to build your website on, but the biggest announcement has to be their new partnership with Getty Images. A good-looking, well-designed website needs great content, and now every Squarespace user gets access to 40 million high-quality images from Getty at an amazingly affordable $10 per photo. If you're even a little bit curious about building a professional website or online portfolio, you owe it to yourself to check out their preview of everything they have rolling out with Squarespace 7. Simply check out squarespace.com. If you're ready to get your feet wet, you can with a free 14-day trial, no credit card necessary. Then when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform, makes it fast and easy to create, you can start with 20- 
talk today about money and happiness, which are two things that a lot of us spend a lot of our time uh, thinking about, either trying to earn them or trying to increase them. And a lot of us resonate with this phrase, so we see it in religions and self-help books, that money can't buy happiness. And I want to suggest today that, in fact, that's wrong, and that <laughs> I'm at a business school, so that's what we do, so that that's wrong. And in fact, if you think that, you're actually just not spending it right so that instead of spending it the way you usually spend it maybe if you spent it differently that might work a little bit uh, better and and before i tell you the ways that you can spend it that will make you happier let's think about the ways we usually spend it that don't in fact make us happier we had a little natural experiment so so cnn a little while ago wrote this uh interesting article on what happens to people when they win the lottery turns out people think when they win the lottery their lives are going to be amazing this article is about how their lives get ruined So what happens when people win the lottery is, number one, they spend all the money and go into debt. And number two, all of their friends and everyone they've ever met find them and bug them for money. And it ruins their social relationships, in fact. So they have more debt and worse friendships than they had before they won the lottery. What was interesting about the article was people started commenting on the article, readers of the thing. And instead of talking about how it had made them realize that money doesn't lead to happiness, everyone instantly started saying, you know what I would do if I won the lottery? And, and fantasizing about what they do. And here's just two of the ones that, that we saw that are just really interesting to think about. One person wrote in, when I win, I'm going to buy my own little mountain and have a little house on top. And another person wrote, I would fill a big bathtub with money and get in the tub while smoking a big fat cigar and sipping a glass of champagne. This is even worse now. Then I'd have a picture taken and dozens of glossies made. Anyone begging for money or trying to extort from me would receive a copy of the picture and nothing else. And so many of the comments were exactly of this type, where people got money, and in fact, it made them antisocial. So we, I told you that it ruins people's lives and that their friends bug them. It also, money often makes us feel very selfish, and we do things only for ourselves. And we said, well, maybe the reason that money doesn't make us happy is that we're always spending it on the wrong things, and in particular, that we're always spending it on ourselves. And we thought, I wonder what would happen if we made people spend more of their money on other people. So instead of being antisocial with your money, what if you were a little bit more pro-social with your money? And we thought, let's make people do it and see what happens. So let's have some people do what they usually do and spend money on themselves, and let's make some people give money away and measure their happiness and see if, in fact, they get happier. So the first way that we did this on uh, one uh, Vancouver morning, we went out on the campus uh, at University of British Columbia, and we approached people and said, do you want to be in an experiment? And they said yes. We, gave, we asked them how happy they were. And then we gave them an envelope. And one of the envelopes had things in it that said, by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on yourself. So we gave some examples of what you could spend it on. Other people in the morning got a slip of paper that said, by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on somebody else. Also inside the envelope was money. And we manipulated how much money we gave them. So some people got this slip of paper and $5. Some people got this slip of paper and $20. We let them go about their day. They uh, did whatever they wanted to do. We found out that they did, in fact, spend it in the way that we asked them to. We called them up at night and asked them, what would you spend it on, and how happy do you feel now? What did they spend it on? Well, these are college undergrads, so a lot of what they spent it on for themselves was things like earrings and makeup. One woman said she bought a stuffed animal for her niece. Uh, People gave money to homeless people. Huge effect here of uh, Starbucks. 
So if you give undergraduates $5, it looks like coffee to them, and they run over to Starbucks and spend it as fast as they can. But some people bought a coffee for themselves the way they usually would, but other people said that they bought a coffee for somebody else. So the very same purchase, just targeted toward yourself or targeted toward some, somebody else. What did we find when we called them back at the end of the day? People who spent money on other people got happier. People who spent money on themselves, nothing happened. It didn't make them less happy, it just didn't do much for them. And the other thing we saw is that the amount of money doesn't matter that much. So people thought that $20 would be way better than $5. In fact, it doesn't matter how much money you spent, what really matters is that you spent it on somebody else rather than on yourself. We see this again and again when we give people money uh, to spend on other people instead of on themselves. Of course, these are undergraduates in Canada, not the world's most representative uh, population. They're also fairly wealthy and affluent and all these other sorts of things. We wanted to see if this holds true everywhere in the world or just among wealthy countries. So we went, in fact, to Uganda and ran a very similar experiment. So imagine instead of just people Canada, we say, name the last time you spent money on yourself or other people, describe it, how happy did it make you? Or in Uganda, name the last time you spent money on yourself or other people, uh, and describe that, and then we ask them how happy they are again. And what we see is sort of amazing because there's human universals on what you do with your money and then real cultural differences on what you do as well. So, for example, one uh, guy uh, from Uganda says this. He says, I called a girl I wish to love. We basically went out on a date, and he, he says at the end that he didn't achieve her uh, up till now. Here's a guy from uh, Canada. Very similar thing. Uh, I took my girlfriend out for dinner, we went to a movie, we left early, and then went back to her room for only cake. Just, just gave them <laughs> Human universal. So you spend money on other people, you're being nice to them. Maybe you have something in mind, maybe not. But then we see extraordinary differences. So, so look at these two. This is a woman from Canada. We say, name a time you spent money on somebody else. She says, uh, you know, I bought a present for my mom. I drove to the mall in my car, bought a present, gave it to my mom. Perfectly nice thing to do. It's good to get gifts for people that you know. Compare that to this woman from Uganda. Uh, I was walking and met a longtime friend whose, whose son was sick with malaria. They had no money. They went to a clinic, uh, and I gave her this money. This isn't $10,000. It's the local currency. So it's, it's a very small amount of money, in fact. But enormously different motivations here. This is a real medical need, literally a life-saving donation. Above, it's just kind of, I got, bought a gift for my mother. What we see again, though, is that the specific way that you spend on other people isn't nearly as important as the fact that you spend on other people in order to make yourself happy, which is really quite important. So you don't have to do amazing things with your money to make yourself happy. You can do small, trivial things and yet still get these benefits from doing this. These are only two countries. We also wanted to go even broader and look at every country in the world, if we could, to see what the relationship is between money and happiness. We got data from uh, the Gallup organization, which you know from all the political polls that have been happening lately. They asked people, did you donate money to charity recently? And they asked them, how happy are you with your life in general? And we can see what the relationship is between those two things. Are they positively correlated, giving money makes you happy, or are they negatively correlated? On this map, green will mean they're positively correlated, and red means they're negatively correlated. And you can see the world is crazily green. So in every, almost every country in the world where we have this data, people who give money to charity are happier people than people who don't give money to charity. I know you're all looking at that red country in the middle. I would be a jerk and not tell you what it is, but it's, in fact, it's Central African Republic. You can make up stories. Uh, maybe it's different there for some reason or another. Just below that to the right is Rwanda, though, which is amazingly green. So almost everywhere we look, we see that giving money away makes you happier than keeping it uh, for yourself.
What about your work life, which is where we spend all the rest of our time when we're not with the people we know? We decided to infiltrate some companies and do a very similar thing. So these are sales teams uh, in Belgium. They work in teams. They go out and sell basically to uh, doctors and try to get them to buy drugs. So we, we can look to see how well they sell things. Uh, as a function of being a member of a team. Some teams, we give people on the team some money for themselves and say, spend it however you want on yourself, just like we did with the undergrads in Canada. But other teams, we say, here's 15 euro. Spend it on one of your teammates this week. Buy them something as a gift or a present and give it to them. And then we can see, now we've got teams that spend on themselves and we've got these pro-social teams, so we give money to make the team a little better. The reason I have a ridiculous pinata there is one of the teams pulled their money and bought a pinata, and they all got around and smashed the pinata, and all the candy fell out and things like that. A very silly, trivial thing to do, but think of the difference on a team that didn't do that at all, that got 15 euro, put it in their pocket, maybe bought themselves a coffee, or teams that had this pro-social experience where they all bonded together to buy something and do a group activity. What we see is that, in fact, the teams that are pro-social sell more stuff than the teams that only got money for themselves. And one way to think about it is, for every 15 euro you give people for themselves, they put it in their pocket, they don't do anything different than they did before, you don't get any money from that. You actually lose money because it doesn't motivate them to perform any better. But when you give them 15 euro to spend on their teammates, they do so much better on their teams that you actually get a huge win on investing this kind of money. And I realize that you're probably thinking to yourselves, this is all fine, but there's a context that's incredibly important for public policy. And I can't imagine it would work there. And if, if basically, if he doesn't show me that it works here, I don't believe anything he said. And I know that what, what you're all thinking about are dodgeball teams. <laughs> this was a huge criticism that we got, you know, to say, if, if you can't show with dodgeball teams, this is all stupid. So we, we went out and found these dodgeball teams and infiltrated them. And we did the exact same thing as before. So some teams, we give people on the team money. They spend it on themselves. Other teams, we give them money to spend on their dodgeball teammates. The teams that spent money on themselves, they're just the same winning percentage as they were before. The teams that we give the money to spend on each other, they become different teams, and in fact, they dominate the league by the time they're done. Across all of these different contexts, your personal life, your work life, even silly things like intramural sports, we see spending on other people has a bigger return for you than spending uh, on yourself. And so I'll just say, I, I think if you think money can't buy happiness, you're not spending it right. Uh, the implication is not, you know, you should buy this product instead of that product. And that's the way to make yourself happier. It's, in fact, that you should stop thinking about which product to buy for yourself and try giving some of it to other people instead. And we luckily have an opportunity for you. DonorsChoose.org is, is a nonprofit for uh, mainly uh, public school teachers in low-income schools. They post projects, so they say, I want to teach uh, Huckleberry Finn to my class, and we don't have the books. Or I want a microscope to show my, teach my students science, and we don't have a microscope. You and I can go on and buy it for them. The teacher writes you a thank you note. The kids write you a thank you note. Sometimes they send you pictures of them using the microscope. It's an extraordinary thing. Go to the website and start yourself on the process of thinking, again, less about how can I spend money on myself and more about if I've got $5 or $15, what can I do to benefit other people? Because ultimately when you do that, you'll find out you'll benefit yourself much more. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. 
You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. In July, earlier in the year, while I was on vacation, this story broke that was really kind of depressing and amazing and an indictment of our culture, of American culture, and the safety net that doesn't exist, and the shitty fucking jobs that are available to people out there. A mom, a single parent, who had a job at a McDonald's where she was making shit money, didn't know what to do with her nine-year-old daughter. For a long time, when mom was at work, the child had sat in the McDonald's with a tablet computer playing games. And then the tablet computer was stolen, the kid was bored, and so mom gave her daughter permission to go play in a park near the McDonald's. Took her to that park near the McDonald's, near where she works. And this was a park full of children and parents. This wasn't some heroin den. This wasn't some dangerous, bramble-covered fucking shooting gallery in the woods. This was a park full of children. This was a playground. And halfway through the day, uh, a parent asked this little girl who had gotten in no trouble and was in no way threatened and hadn't been endangered or harmed in any way where her mom or dad was. And the girl said that she was there alone and her mom was at work. And this parent called the police and the mom who had dropped her daughter off at the park was arrested, charged with felony child endangerment, was fired from her job at McDonald's. So that's one nine-year-old girl over here. The parents of another nine-year-old girl, parents from New Jersey, took their daughter, age nine, to a shooting range in Arizona last week where they filmed their daughter, their precious child, using an Uzi, getting a lesson at the shooting gallery, the shooting range, in how to fire an Uzi. And this is a shooting range where children as young as eight are allowed to fire guns. And there was a, an instructor with this child showing her how to use this Uzi. The video is online and it is frightening and disturbing. Even if you don't know how it ends, it's frightening and disturbing to see a nine-year-old little girl with a pigtail and pink shorts firing a fucking Uzi. Uh, as I'm sure all of you know, the Uzi, when the gun instructor set it to automatic, recoiled in her hand as she fired it, and she blew the brains out of her gun instructor. 39-year-old guy, dead. Those parents... Parents who put an Uzi into their daughter's, nine-year-old daughter's hands and allowed her to fire it, which resulted in the death of a man not facing any criminal charges at all. The police are calling this an industrial accident. So here we have two nine-year-old girls. One dropped off in a park, comes to no harm, harms no one, mom indicted and fired. And here we have a nine-year-old girl taken to a gun rage by her parents. A man is dead, no one indicted. This has happened before. Welcome to America, where you have to be 16 to get a learner's permit and 21 to get a drink, but there is no age limit on when you can have a gun placed into your hands. An eight-year-old boy at a shooting range in Massachusetts, at a gun show in Massachusetts, was also given an Uzi just a few years ago. It also recoiled in his hands because those guns are too powerful for children to hold and too powerful really for any civilian to possess at all ever. But instead of killing the gun instructor or one of the idiots around him who put that Uzi in his hand, it killed the eight-year-old boy. The gun recoiled just the same, but the bullets went into his head, and he is dead. 
the single mom who dropped her daughter off at the park who came to no harm whatsoever, African-American. The parents who took their daughter to the gun range where a man is now dead, white and middle class. Working poor African-American mom, indicted, loses her job. No one is dead. No one is harmed. Middle class, white, parents put an Uzi in the hands of their nine-year-old daughter, film her firing it, a man is dead, and nothing, no charges. Not even for the gun range, just an industrial accident. Nothing to see here, move along. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, is entirely staffed by Voldemorts, sent out a tweet the day after this happened, recommending an article with seven ways for your children to have fun at the gun range. They're just fucking trolls. This country is sick. Gun sick, and also hatred of the poor sick. We passed welfare reform in the mid-90s. Clinton signed it into law, Bill Clinton, and it requires the working poor who are receiving welfare, single mothers, to have jobs, hustles them into jobs, bullies them into jobs. But then when they get jobs, minimum wage jobs, that don't pay enough for them to find private child care. There's no child care services for these mothers. So we say you have to get a job, but then if you aren't, paying attention to your child 24 hours a day, if you're not accompanying your young child everywhere she goes, we will arrest you. And on top of that, we're going to do everything we can to make it harder for you to obtain birth control or health care for you or your child. And then when your child is endangered by this system, not by you, mom, but by this system, we're going to arrest you and charge you with child endangerment. But if you put an Uzi in the hands of your daughter, oh, no, you're fine. No problem, nothing to see here. Move along, industrial accident. In this story with these two nine-year-old girls, you can see very clearly two major fucking cancers on our society. The way we persecute and punish and prosecute the working poor and their children, and the way we refuse to do anything about our gun problem. For such a nuisance, tell me what good are they? Everything comes down to money. And they don't pay their way Jonathan Swift proposed it I'm just saying what he said before Think of the money we can save If we eat the poor Let's eat the poor Let's feed the people people I wanted to give a second example of one of the causes of climate change and again show you the economics of how and why not only the climate change kinds of degradation of our environment have happened, but why they have resisted the efforts of people now for decades to do something about the man-made portions of the causes of this climate change that threatens us all. This has to do as I've mentioned to you before on this program, with the private automobile system of transportation. Look, the reality is that the automobile companies, not just General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, and the others, it's not just they who want to keep the automobile as the core of our transportation system because it's a profitable business for them. But many other companies are involved. The companies that make the plastic that goes into a car. The companies that make the tires on which the cars run. The companies involved in building and maintaining roadways to be used by the cars. 
roadways that the cars, you know, uh, destroy or deteriorate over time that have to be maintained. There are many corporate enterprises whose profits depend on using the automobile. That's why we don't have a solution. The automobile is the single largest uh, polluter of the air in a modern capitalist economy. In most societies, it's the single most important killer of persons every year in car accidents that kill. It is a major source of injury in car accidents that hurt people. It uses up all kinds of resources to give every person his or her individual car. All of those horrible consequences of a transportation system that relies on cars could be and would be radically reduced if we had a system of street railways, buses, vans, and trains that came often, that were comfortable, that had attractive amenities in them, food, drink, entertainment. It's all easy. We know how to do it. And if we had all those things, all that we would need is on the edges of our cities and towns, some parking lots with the few cars that people would still need when they had that kind of a need, particularly in rural areas, to go a long distance to see someone in the family or to make a family trip. Then we would do what we already have organized in our rental car systems, a pool of cars for the occasional use that people have of them. But the basic transportation would be what we call mass transportation. Much less environmental damage, much less burning of fossil fuels, much less death, much less injury. It's a win, 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 not for everybody, because it would hurt the car companies and the companies that serve the private automobile. But there's a further complication. Those companies know that if the world understood that it was everybody's better off just the car companies' profits that are hurt if we go to mass transit, that they wouldn't survive, that we would long ago have made that transition. We wouldn't be multiplying the private car around the world. So they knew they had to enlist masses of people to support their profitable investment in the private automobile. So they went to the workers in the car companies, in the construction companies that keep up the roads, in the rubber companies, in the plastic companies. And they said, you will suffer because if we don't have the private car, we will go out of business and we will fire you. So you should support us in holding on to the private car, even though it's your children that get hurt in the accidents and it is your air that's being polluted, etc. And many, many workers, understandably, went that way and became skeptics about climate change, opponents of transition to mass transit, and so on. Well, here's a solution. If it hasn't occurred to you, let me be the first to offer it. Suppose we had an economic system, not a capitalist one, of course, that gave a fundamental right to people. Not just the right for free speech, not just the right to travel where and when you want to, not, not just those, but another one the right to a decent income and a decent job. That if you're a citizen of our community, that's an obligation. Your obligation is to work, 
our obligation as a community is to provide you with a decent working environment and a decent level of pay for doing that. If that was a guarantee, then the workers in this country or any country would never support the capitalists holding on to what are environmentally and socially destructive enterprises just for the profits. You know why? Because the workers would know that in the event we stop producing the private enterprise, their jobs and incomes would not be threatened. It's the company's profits that would disappear because we wouldn't make private cars the way we do now. A tiny fraction of them would be produced for our occasional use. So the, the mass of workers would then be moved to other kinds of work that we need. For example, many of them would go into the industries producing mass transportation vehicles, the vans, the buses, the street railways, to which we would then look for our transportation future. Other workers would be found socially useful jobs because that's the guarantee we give to ourselves as citizens. If we did that, if we moved in the direction of serious economic change of the sort that would provide everybody with a job guarantee, it would go further to dealing with our environmental problems, including climate change, than we've been able to do up until now. Economic change isn't a secondary issue. Economic change isn't a different issue. Economic change lies at the core of anything likely to work to deal with our uh, environmental crises. Just like the failure to change our economy has helped to produce, whether it be in the car industry or the absurd fact that we now import the appliances and clothing we used to produce locally, thereby wasting a vast transportation network to do it, these are economically rooted problems, and these are economically based solutions. And it is long overdue that the environmental movement that was so on display in that last Sunday of September in New York make common cause with the movements for fundamental economic change so that they can much more successfully meet both of these movements' goals rather than being unable to reach either of their movement's goals. Come on, get ready. Come on, we'll join the forces. People get ready right now. Time to be in a prayer shop. Come on, get ready. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, New Economy Week. First, let's start by agreeing that capitalism is working really well for like 10 dudes, all billionaires. With more than 300 million people living in the United States, this doesn't sound like a very sustainable course. We need new ideas that are practical and stem from a social justice background, and we need them fast. 
Luckily, the folks at the New Economy Coalition have kickstarted some ambitious work, and you're invited to join in during New Economy Week, happening now through October 19th. According to their website, neweconomyweek.org, this group of events happening across Canada, the U.S., and via the Internet, quote, is an opportunity to explore what it would take to build the economy we need, one that works for people, place, and planet. We invite you to join us for online and in-person events that highlight successes, ask tough questions, and give life to the claim that another world is possible, unquote. If the idea of a new economy sounds vague, you should check out the public discussions Yes Magazine is holding in conjunction with the New Economy Coalition. They're including articles, essays, and chats on everything from combating climate change without leaving anyone behind to expanding how we think about what's possible, all of which is available at yesmagazine.org. The map at the New Economy Week website will connect you to the in-person events, and their Get Involved tag provides an opportunity to plan your own. Thousands of things are being done around the world right now by everyday people to build a new kind of economy. These innovators are engaged in the work of growing cooperative and independent enterprises, democratizing and stabilizing finance through credit unions and public banks, finding new ways to share skills and goods, developing new measures for success, and inventing new ways to meet the increased increasing human need, burdening our all-too-finite planet. Join them. Become part of the solution. Just because capitalism is our only lived experience doesn't mean it has to be our future. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If a sustainable and just economy matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about New Economy Week via social media so that others in your network can participate too. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Fuck comfort. All right? Fuck comfort. Because for just a little bit of comfort, we're willing to sit here in this cesspool of greed and poverty, environmental decimation and emotional degradation. It's all okay, as long as most of us have a comfy couch and Grand Theft Auto 5, or even 4. We're sitting back with our feet up, all the while developing cancer of the body, cancer of the mind, cancer of the imagination, and cancer of the possibility of humankind. Is this really the best we can do? You ever get stuck in a doctor's office waiting room, forced to have midday television violently stuffed into your brain like food into a 
foie gras goose. Watch 20 minutes of midday TV and tell me, tell me you don't pray for a meteor to send us the way of the dinosaurs. Last week I was in a doctor's office and they were blasting a MSNBC show filled with logic that could make flowers wilt. You see, when Bush was in office, MSNBC was considered the left-wing network, but now that Obama's in office and Obama's Republican light, by defending his every move, MSNBC is a right-wing network. By the time I left the doctor's office, the pain in my wrist was cured, but I was a fucking moron. That's a steep price to pay. And you can't just defend the Obama apology networks by saying, well, it's better than Fox News. Yeah, farting on a speaking spell is better than Fox News, but that doesn't mean much, does it? Sorry, I, I got sidetracked there for a second. The question is, is the little comfort you or I have really worth sitting around and watching the world burn? Just think about the aliens that show up to investigate after, after humans are gone, because we let climate change and unintended consequences of GMOs destroy our food sources. Those aliens will be like, well, why didn't anyone get pissed off and change things? Well, as far as we can tell, it, 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 it's because of uh, tacos and cool shoes. Yeah, they all just had enough tacos and cool shoes and frozen yogurt with little little Oreo sprinkles. Uh, on the top to, to not want to rock the boat. They were afraid if they protested or started rebelling or started thinking outside the box, then the powers that be would take away their tacos and that their, their iPod might stop working. So they all just watched it slowly burn while making this face. The most important moment in my life, and it's probably the same with most people's lives, are those moments where you take a risk. You never hear anybody say, yeah, I remember the most pivotal incident in my life. I remember it well. I was, uh, I was sitting in my favorite chair doing the word jumble in the newspaper, and I thought to myself, I better keep doing this jumble. That was the moment. Yeah, I did a lot of jumbles after that. Taking risks is what life is about. Fuck comfort! Ironically, comfort will kill us all. And don't take my word for it. Here is activist Tarak Kalf, a longtime social justice and anti-war protester who also recently finished a 60-day hunger strike to bring attention to the injustices being done in Guantanamo Bay. When you make a sacrifice for a good cause, you know, it has a double benefit. It benefits the cause and also it empowers you. Yeah. You become stronger when you make that sacrifice. It, it makes you stronger. Also, the element of risk, what we were just talking about. Right. You know, risk taking, risk keeps you young. Right. You don't get old when you take risks. You know, only, only you become old when you start playing it safe. But when you take a risk for a good cause, and you were saying that you experienced that also, yeah. it keeps you young. That's what being young is all about. So maybe one of the greatest things keeping people from joining protests is, is comfort. It's just a little bit of comfort and worry they might lose that. Exactly. Yeah. And comfort is comfort doesn't make you strong. Yeah. Comfort comes into you and it weakens you. You know, you get attached to it. It becomes an addiction. And then you don't want to lose it. And then you need more comfort. Yeah. But sacrifice and risk keeps you alive. It's a big difference.
Hey, Jay, this is Che calling from the Sierra Nevada foothills in California. In response to your death penalty show, something that I haven't heard mentioned is that attorneys general, district attorneys, prosecutors in general, they have a vested interest in getting their guy. So once they get their guy, they do not want to be proven wrong. You can imagine someone working day in and day out in the courtroom, getting that win-loss column up there. They, they vie for political office. So they naturally want to suppress, sort of naturally, want to suppress evidence. They, they, you can imagine 10 years on, 20 years on, and in the case of Glenn Ford in Louisiana, almost 30 years later, uh, being shown to be wrong. Imagine that what that could do to your career. And it's not only the individuals, the, the prosecutors, it's the whole state apparatus, the whole police department who made the bus will be proven wrong, all the way up to the governor. So the whole apparatus comes down, especially in a death penalty case, and the whole state is, is trying to get this guy. So it's natural that, it, so to speak, that the evidence would be suppressed as in the case of Glenn Ford. So the, these guys all work together. The attorneys general, of course, the governor, the police department, the judges, public defenders. In any industry, you're going to have an inner, inner workings. And it reminds me of the guy, the listener who called in regarding uh, police brutality. And he said there's three kinds of police, right? There's three kinds of cops. One is the whistleblower. He's weeded out in 18 months because he talks too much. Then you got the guy who just keeps his head down, feeds his family, and you know wants to get his pension and get out of there. Then you got the bad cops who run the show. So you got all these guys working together, and once they get their guy, they do not want to be proven wrong, right? So you, it just makes you have to surmise that although the study says it's one in 25, it's only four percent. You have to imagine, or at least surmise, with the Glenn Ford case, that more evidence is suppressed especially in those cases, right? So is it only one in 25? Is it two in 25? Is it four in 25? Is it as much as 20%? We just don't know. So it, to support the death penalty in America, you, it's a little bit nuanced, but, but any intelligent person with a rational mind cannot support it. And also, I just want to compliment you, that clip you played about with the gentleman who interviewed from uh, Saudi Arabia, who was interviewed about the beheadings there, uh, what a glaring hypocrisy. That that was really brilliant. And uh, I just want to thank you for uh, awesome shows, man. Have a good one, Jake. Hey, Jay. It's Kat in Berlin calling in again. Wanted to put in my two cents. Just listen to the mind, the coverage gap of healthcare. Um, and there's so many things that were said from the BBC reporter that was great about um, just how people don't even know it's in their own best interest. But being an American living in, in Germany where I have health care, where I don't have to worry about these things, I realized what a topic it becomes for people. When, whenever I go back to the States and visit my family and visit my friends, people there talk about it all the time. And it's something that we just don't do here in Europe. You're just covered. It's just not an issue. And I just can't get over how it always become such a topic because it, it, it influences every aspect of your life. And people are worried about this government takeover of health care. They don't realize that not having health care basically takes over their life way more than having any sort of government intervention or something like that. I don't know. I just want to put in my my opinion on that one. If that we just got coverage in the U.S., we could talk about so many more interesting things. Thanks again. Love the show. And keep me informed here in Berlin. Bye.
Hey, Jay, it's Kat in Berlin calling again. My husband here, who is a German, heard me make the uh, comment about the healthcare situation, and he pointed out one more interesting thing that I thought the listeners might want to hear. Germany has a population of over 80 million people, and um, the government here had a problem when they discovered that 200,000 people are still not covered, whether it's because they're independently working or something like that, where they haven't gone ahead and gotten themselves set up an insurance and it became a big problem for the government. So they, they enacted a law and went after trying to get all those people covered. And of the 200,000, they've been able to insure 80,000 of them. But it's still an issue that there's 120,000 people out of a population of over 80 million that are not insured and they're trying to get them covered somehow. So chew on that, Americans. All right, keep up the good work. Cheers. Hi, Jay. My name's Eric. I'm calling from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm a new listener to your pro- your program, and I am blown away by some of the calls you've been getting, specifically starting with Tanya, talking about a very sensitive issue related to domestic violence, and equally impressed with the sensitivity with which that call was moderated. I do. Uh, my heart goes out to some uh, calls that have followed that call, and I feel that I need to make aware the availability of a program that's available for people that want nothing more than uh, happy, healthy relationships in their life. And that is, in fact, the only requirement for participating in this program is a desire for happy relationships. And that this program is called Codependence Anonymous. It's the 12-step program, modeled after so many of the other 12-step programs that are out there like AA, NA, and so on, and is completely available for people that are in similar situations, finding themselves falling into relationships that simply are not healthy, they're not working for them. That's romantic relationships to just people you encounter at work or encounter in day-to-day interaction. It's an international organization and been phenomenal for me and has been phenomenal for a number of people that I've gotten to know. I know there's no such thing as a magic bullet and I'm not implying that this is by any, any means. But it is a resource that's available. It's available in most cities. And it's just a matter of going to coda.org, C-O-D-A.org, looking up your area, seeing if there's meetings in that area, and attending. They are generally open to anyone who wants to follow up on this and work on improving their ability to be in healthy relationships. So thank you very much, Jay. I love your program, and keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, congratulations, first of all. You have stumbled upon 
one of the most random sets of final comments I think I've ever done. Uh, this is not political. This is not self-promotional. It has nothing to do with the show. It's it's very random, but I think it'll make sense at the end and, and you'll appreciate it. So just last night, I'll uh, get to the point in a minute, but I'll start at the beginning. Last night, I was reminded to do a little bit of research on holophonic audio, you know, you know, as, as one is from time to time. And, you know, maybe... Many of you don't even know what holophonic audio is, uh, which is very reasonable. It's not very common. But the, the short explanation is that it is a way of recording audio in 360 degrees as compared to the two-dimensional audio that we're used to. And to be clear, this is not the same as the difference between mono and stereo. Mono just means everything is the same in, in both of your headphones. Stereo means that the sound could move left to right. Holophonic audio, true 3D audio, means that it can move in all directions. It can move left and right and up and down and in front of you and behind you. It's sort of crazy and almost magic. So rather than try to explain it a whole lot, I'll play just a snippet of a bit of a sample for uh, of holophonic sound. And this is basically the, the simplest demonstration you can imagine. It's basically just a guy shaking a box of matches just to make some noise. And I'm playing this bit of it because it shows that the, the sound doesn't just go left to right, it goes up and down as well. So have a listen to this, and then I'll come back and explain why all of this matters. Now, I meant to mention there, sorry, that uh, you only really got the full effect if you're listening to that using headphones. If you're listening through speakers on your computer or you're in your car or anything along those lines, you're not getting the full effect. So maybe some other time later, you'd want to put on headphones and listen to that again. Or, I mean, anyone could have plenty of fun just Googling around holophonic sound samples or anything along those lines. There's one that's sort of famous called uh, the virtual haircut where you you know, it sounds like you're in a barber's chair as someone is sort of walking around you and things like that. Um, so, you know, it's a really fascinating concept. And the real question is, why am I bringing it up? And what does it have to do anything? Uh, like I said, it's not political, but as a person who really enjoys listening to things, podcasts and that sort of thing, speaking to a bunch of people who I presume also like listening to things, I feel like this is the kind of technology that is due to hit the mainstream market. Uh, because the technology is so expensive right now, no one really uses it. And you know, the only people who could afford this technology is maybe like, you know, the big time radio stations, but they don't cater to people who listen to their programming using headphones. They cater to people who listen in cars and that sort of thing. So what I think would be interesting is for podcasts, if if podcasters got their hands on the technology to record 3D audio, 
because their listeners are so much more likely to be listening using headphones, they could make really good use out of it. So, I mean, you can let your imagination run wild from, you know, travel podcasts that uh, give you a virtual tour or a a storytelling podcast that creates a, a theater of the mind scenario like could never be done before and so on and so on. So, you know, if this technology were much cheaper, then we as podcast lovers could reap the benefits of all of that. So as I said, I was doing some research on these and I came across a brand new Kickstarter campaign trying to do just that, trying to create a cheaper way of recording 3D audio. It's this new company called Hook. It's spelled with an E at the end, H-O-O-K-E, and they're trying to build wireless 3D audio headphones. So if you Google all of that, you will find their Kickstarter page. And so I'm bringing it up now because I want for this campaign to to succeed. I want to buy a set of those, those headphones. And so if you're interested at all in the concept or would like a set of those headphones yourself, then just Google hook wireless 3D audio headphones for yourself and contribute to the Kickstarter. I'll also include the link in the show notes for this episode. And But keep in mind, you don't need these headphones to hear 3D audio. These headphones let you record 3D audio. The, the just quick and dirty explanation of how it works is that 3D audio is recorded using two microphones recording simultaneously spaced apart just like human ears are spaced apart. And so headphones are the perfect way to automatically do that. You put it on a real person, put it right in your ears and record that way, and it records the world around you. And because it's spaced just like human ears, when we as humans listen to that recording, it sounds like we're there because it is recorded as you know as if through human ears. So it's a really interesting technology, something I would very much like to exist. As I said, I've got some ideas of how I could use it, and I've definitely got some ideas for how other podcasters could use it and I could enjoy the benefits of that. And so I thought, what the heck, I'll promote this Kickstarter, even though it's not the sort of thing I usually ever do. I'm not like a technophile who's crazy about gadgets, although I enjoy them. And I'm not even an audiophile who's real picky about what kind of headphones I use. But this is sort of a whole other class uh, of audio that I would be really excited about. So if you're interested, check it out. And if not, well, sorry. Anyways, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories and Story.
Stories and forgot who it is before.